You're listening to a sponsored episode from CT Creative Studio. February is Black History Month, the first since racial unrest erupted in the wake of George Floyd's killing in Minneapolis. A relentless pandemic furthers the exposure of racial injustice in America, a systemic reality with which our politics and society continue to reckon. Throughout America's too long bedevilment with this sin, the black church has bore witness to righteousness and justice from God and Jesus Christ, who many recognize as a poor man of color from the ghetto of Nazareth, born into oppression and killed unjustly by abusive power. This is a special bonus episode of Quick to Listen, a weekly podcast of Christianity Today, hosted by Morgan Lee and Ted Olson that delves beneath the surface of current events to see how God is at work and how the church is engaged in issues confronting our world. This special episode is sponsored by PBS, producers of a two-part series this month entitled The Black Church, This Is Our Story, This Is Our Song. Is scheduled to air February 16th and 17th and reveals the broad history and culture of the Black church and explores African-American faith communities on the front lines of hope and change. Today, to discuss their own experience of the Black church as a spiritual, political, social, and cultural movement of the Spirit, we are delighted to welcome Dr. Vincent Baycoat, Professor of Theology, Director of Center for Applied Christian Ethics at Wheaton College. Dr. Dennis R. Edwards, pastor, church planter, and now associate professor of New Testament at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, and Dr. Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Church Midtown in Louisville, Kentucky. My name is Daniel Harrell. I'm editor-in-chief at Christianity Today, and welcome, gentlemen. So glad to have you here with us. Let's start with an explainer. How do each of you describe uh, the Black church, both in your own experience and by virtue of your work and uh, study connected to it? Uh, Dr. Bako, let me start with you. Sure. I grew up going to a church called Shiloh Baptist Church of Glenarden, Maryland. And it was, I didn't learn this until I'm in my mid-30s, but it was a national, or is, sorry, a national and progressive Baptist church. So the two largest African-American Baptist denominations. So I grew up in a, a church-going family, so it's just part of, of my heritage. I think if we're going to talk about the, the heritage of the, the Black church itself, in part, it existed because it was forced into existence by the powers that be that didn't want the flourishing of African-American Christians. Mm-hmm. So I think that's part of, of a way to think about why it exists. Uh, and also, it exists the way that it exists in terms of some of the things that it does, because over its history, and particularly post-Civil War, it became this place of holistic ministry. It was not a place of only proclamation, but a place that attended to all the dimensions of life. Mm. Yeah, Dr. Edwards. Yeah, I appreciate that. Now, interestingly, I, I think also of the Black Church as I, the word I use is a hub, a hub of community life. I mean, I learned public speaking there. I learned to trust my elders, you know, treat my elders with respect. I learned to to learn about God. But I would also say that the Black church is not, is not a monolith, although there are those 
well-known denominations, kind of the predominant historic ones, AME, National Progressive Baptist that Dr. Baco just mentioned, Church of God in Christ. I grew up in a small, insular, exclusive, charismatic denomination. It had some connections with the Church of God in Christ, but it shunned political involvement and activism. It was kind of weird in the sense that it pulled away, you know, kind of part of that holiness thinking pulled away from the activism that some of the uh, other churches were were doing. So I would say it shared some of the cultural uniquenesses, but had its own kind of uh, take on how to engage society, you know. What denomination? I, I guess I can say denominations. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to throw too much shade, but it's the Church of Our Lord Jesus Christ of the Apostolic Faith. Okay. The big mother church is up in, uh, in Harlem, uh, close to Abyssinian Baptist. They're pretty much uh, across the street from each other. Well, now, now as these churches, Dr. Edwards, you know, sort of have these various uh, expressions and emphases, does that create a sort of tension amongst black churches or is it the kind of thing that, I don't know, there's this common theme that, that pulls everybody together despite these different emphases or, yeah, just some of the, the reason for the distinctiveness? Well, I'm getting up in age, so things may have changed, but, uh, <laughs> but when I was younger, oh, it was definitely a, uh, a, a sense of we don't fellowship with those folks. You know, it was, huh. uh, we saw ourselves as the holy, holiness people. And, uh, and, and in fact, we even kind of threw stones over at the Baptist, metaphorical stones. And uh, <laughs> because, because, you know, sometimes you can see Baptist people smoking and, uh, and our church was like, you don't oh, yeah. smoke cigarettes. Oh, those, yeah. those Baptist folks ain't saved. I mean, that, that was the kind of stuff I grew up with. Oh, my so God. my black church experience, I, I admit, is somewhat fringe. Although we shared in some of the same tradition of singing hymns in a mm-hmm. particular style. I'm from New York, so we also experienced some of the great migration of Black folks from the South being part of the church up North. So there was, there was that, but, um, but frankly, our theology kept us separate. I like that. I like the, the name, the, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ, just in case. <laughs> yes. In fact, I, I'll just go one more thing. Um, yeah. We didn't believe in a trinity, so the church taught Jesus only. So that's the Church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is part of the title. So they, mm-hmm. you had to be baptized in the name of Jesus. In fact, they kind of the nickname would say Jesus only. So it's a oneness theology, if you've ever heard of that. That's what I grew up in. Oh, I'm gonna come. I'm gonna come back to that. Yeah, I got two minutes stories. <laughs> move, move on, move on to Dr. Williams. I want to hear about Dr. Williams. <laughs> All right, Dr. Williams, tell us, tell us about your tell us your story. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what, uh, Dr. Edwards, that's that's just fascinating. Uh, you know, and when I thought about the question, the first thing that came to mind was a hub as well, and mm, it's where mm. kind of faith came to be, education, hope, as well as just mentoring. And just knowing how to respect, learning how to respect people. So uh, for me, the black church is home. It's a spiritual parent. But like Mm. Dr. Edwards, I've had a interesting journey in that Mm. I was a part of a national Baptist church in Chicago, Illinois. That was a a traditional black kind of Baptist church. Uh, My father then planted a church that was charismatic and non-denominational that sought to be more multicultural, though culturally it was uh, Black. And then when I went to college, I joined uh, without 
knowing it, a Southern Baptist church plant. I learned that on my way out. Um, <laughs> and now I, <laughs> and then I, I pastored for eight years at historic African-American church here in Louisville, Kentucky. That was 150 years old. That was named Forest Baptist Church because it was uh, founded in the forest. It was an invisible institution wow. before Blacks can own uh, land here in Louisville. So they actually met in the forest where the church uh, actually sat. And so I've had a different experience. Each of those experiences is different. So I love what he said, uh, what Dr. Edwards said about it not being uh, monolithic, because in each of those churches, there was different. But I think one commonality with the black church in general is just the sense of of history and Mm -hmm. connectedness and knowing that uh, the church itself is doesn't quite fit in to Mm -hmm. neat boxes. Right. And there were sojourners and exiles. Just one thing to add about the diversity. I think that the diversity point is very important because I think one of the assumptions that people can make is that in wanting to give attention to this category of black church, yeah, it can fall into the same kind of, you know, capturing it in this box. Yeah. And you think that X, Y, and Z are all the same when within every tradition, you know, there are those fault lines about how much engagement is there with politics. Which direction are you going in in terms of holiness or even those theological matters about whether you're going to be Trinitarian, whether baptism is a saving act, all those types of things. Because I remember once we were driving to somewhere in D.C. and I remember asking my mom, why don't we go to one of these other churches? Right. Because I was just curious. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, her response, which I don't remember the specifics of it. But um, it was not a mild response. <laughs> you know, in, in other words, it's because, you know, because of like we're a certain kind of people, they're another kind of people. We're not like them, right? So, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, there are also class distinctions sometimes that play a role in some of those backgrounds as right. well. Right. So I think, though, the diversity is important, even as we, we uh, emphasize the commonality. But on issues of, say, you know, systemic racism and justice, Place and culture, is there unity around that or just, you know, division? I I would say from my perspective that there tends to be a similar thinking in terms of looking at the society and how we fit in there or don't Mm -hmm. fit in there. But the solutions, I would say, have varied. Like, Like I even see in some white churches, the solutions are either get out there and be active, like in the civil rights movement. But the church in my background, that wasn't part of the DNA. It was... We're going to pray because, um, you know, time is wrapping up and Jesus is coming back soon. Mm. So I would say we saw those same ills, but our response to them was different. Hmm. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd agree with that. I think there's a common experience that's inescapable because of just the dominance of white supremacy in the modern West and, and its particular expression in America. So that experience made certain things unavoidable because people were having some encounter with that. But then when it comes to what you do about that, the black church does have biblical and theological trajectories of interpretation, and those trajectories lead people to respond in different ways. Yeah, yeah, well said. You know, I sometimes joke about this, but if any listeners remember the old Blues Brothers movie and the scene where where Jake and Elward think that they um, <laughs> got a mi- on a mission from God, and there's this you know powerful worship scene with James Brown as the preacher— 
and folks are jumping all <laughs> over the pews and stuff. Oh, it's it's an exaggeration, of course, but my church background was a little more like that in terms mm. of the uh, free expression and folks moving all over the place. And and uh, but I have preached in black churches. And it's kind of to Dr. Bacot's point. I've preached in black churches that are not at all like that, and there's a much more stoic kind of a feel to them. And so there's so there's a stereotype, I guess, for some people yeah. that black churches are all like uh, you know in the Blues Brothers. And uh, and I would just say, you know, we've we've learned different ways of expressing our theology and uh, as well. Stereotype by some white people, you mean? Yeah, right. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I thought that was interesting earlier when it was said that sometimes that that's a class distinction as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some so not always, but but sometimes you can see the difference of approach to worship or if if a church is more charismatic, more uh, responsive during preaching uh, based upon social economic class lines. So mm-hmm. I'd love to hear you guys talk a little bit about this past year, you know, um, all that, that's happened in, in the wake of these horrible deaths, uh, hands of police, the of course the pandemic and all this, you know, roiled in, in politics you know, without necessarily getting into the specifics of the election itself, just love to hear your response on on just how the black church has responded to these things and any shifts that you've seen happen. Well, this is Dennis. I, I want to say right away, I, I have wondered, in a sense, is there a black church response in that yeah. I've seen you know different ones of us engage. I've seen different clergy people out in the uh, protests and such. But I also know that there's some concern that folks who saw the black church at the at the leading edge, say, during the civil rights movement, don't see that same prophetic voice coming from the black church. And uh, and I don't want to speak in too many generalities, but I'll say, I mean, even my own kids, I mean, there's a younger generation that seems to be communicating that their activism, in fact, they've, they've tweeted it this way, this is not your grandparents' movement, you know, mm-hmm. that there's a sense that whether it's BLM, uh, Black Lives Matter or other movements are bigger than the church. When I felt like in the past, the church was sort of the leading leading voice in some of the movement. So I would say we're still there. The black church is still there. I just wonder, and I'm saying it as a question, how much our voice is in the leadership as opposed to either alongside or even behind some of the other voices. Yeah. I think part of that's because, you know, when Black Lives Matter as a movement came out, Part of their stated approach to things was we're not the NAACP. Yeah. And we don't have, you know, that way of doing things. Some of which was because we've been kept out of leadership development and some other things. But but it is interesting to observe that even though, as I understand it, there's some church background heritage with the, the founders of Black Lives Matter as a movement. Mm-hmm. Its approach has been intentionally to be a, a more aggressive activism, a more mm-hmm. disruptive activism. And I think with w- what happened in the past year, in a way, you know, the, the megaphone went back to, I think, that form of activism. And with that approach to activism, having the megaphone, so to speak, I think that obscured or directed attention away from what we might call, quote unquote, traditional forms of activism. Some of that, I think, is also just what happens when you get other contexts where people can express things, whether it's from academia or more presence in politics or business, et cetera. So people don't need to have to have 
the preacher be the person that's the mouthpiece yeah. Yeah. for what you're doing in, mm. in terms of anything public. Whereas in the civil rights movement, the great percentage of your leaders had some kind of religious title in front of their name. So there's a greater diversity of context where people can come from. So some of that, I think, also just makes the playing field broader. Dr. Mayko, do you think part of that is because, you know, since the civil rights movement, there's been more black men and women are in places of power and authority outside outside of the church or influence, at least outside of the church where they can speak from or and the church doesn't carry like the same cornerstone of voice? I think it's a both end because okay. I think there's some people who would say, look, Raphael Warnock just got elected to be a senator. He's a mm-hmm. pastor of Ebenezer Baptist mm-hmm. Church, mm-hmm. and he represents a certain trajectory of a certain kind of progressivism in uh, the black church where, I mean, everything, so much of what they do is very politically engaged. So I think you can't ignore that reality, even as we talk about this. Mm. But I do think there is the fact that you have a certain emergence of an African-American middle class, however people want to think about that conversation. And with that educated class, some of them, as they're educated, they don't need the the tutelage, so to speak, of the church to be what informs how they're going to go about and do these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for some of them, they may not feel like, well, I, I mean, it's nice that that's what the legacy was, but you know, I've got this other education that shows me how to go about these things in other ways. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. No, that's 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 really good. I think um, I'm here in Louisville, so Brianna Taylor was literally right in our backyard, mm-hmm. and. So the riots, uh, I stay downtown uh, a few blocks away from where a lot of uh, protests was gone, a lot of even violence, things broke out and was violent. And I got to see all type of responses. And one thing that I've been reflecting on, too, is just the importance in the civil rights movement. It was a young movement, but you also had sages that was around Dr. King that was helping him and other young voices to be able to organize, to be able to use resources from within a community uh, to keep the church as a hub. And the way things kind of move nowadays, and even a lot of the demonstrations that happen, they happen quickly and they organize quickly, a lot of times over Twitter and Facebook. And it almost felt like two, uh, three movements on the ground at times. You had the younger church movement, you had the Black Lives Matter uh, movement or more, for lack of a better term, secular kind of involvement. And then you had the sages, those who were maybe older in the community, on the ground, doing work, but they didn't really have the same voice and ability to to rally people together as much as some of the younger, more social media, you know, aggressive type of organizer. So uh, that's just an observation that I've kind of been trying to wrap my mind around is just uh, how things are organized mm-hmm. within the black church, yeah. um, even across ages. And for the younger generation to make sure that they are incorporating sage voices respectfully during those times. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. That's good. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County. A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption. Written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. 
Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. I wanted to take advantage of this being a Christianity Today podcast and see if we could just talk a little bit about the role theology plays. You know, you're all theologians and connected to the church, and and I appreciate it, uh, Dr. Edwards, in your book, uh, Mike from the Margins, as you talk about the the challenges of, you know, stepping in, into uh, North American seminary spaces that are dominated by, you know, mostly uh, European theologies and We'll just love to hear, and for our listeners' sake to hear, uh, just some of the important uh, contributions of Black theology, if I can speak of it that way, how you see uh, a conversation moving forward that allows for holistic expression of Christian theology. Yeah, just to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I'll jump in first, and I, because I'm going to defer to... Uh, Dr. Baycoat on this, the the expert (laughs) theologian here. But I would say that while there is uh, some pushback, I would say the movement that we think of iconic figures like Cain Hope Felder in biblical studies or James Cone in theology, that they push some buttons and not, you know, not everybody's uh, comfortable with all the buttons they push, but the notion of a black theology of liberation, the notion of deliverance being central, looking at, you know, the Exodus story and salvation as deliverance, hmm. those kinds of notions and and something I think Dr. Baycoat got at earlier, this notion of, of social justice and action being yeah. part and parcel of the church's way of being, I would say that's been true of the Black church, generally speaking. And almost, I had to kind of fight to have my voice heard during my seminary days because the way I was taught was that those are sort of, when I say those, uh, um, uh, justice or issues related to it are somewhat ancillary and maybe right. maybe could be talked about in a special, you know, elective course or something, but not part and parcel of the Christian ethics or Christian theology. So I, I, I put justice as a shorthand way of talking about some of the issues that were raised by those iconic figures like uh, Felder and Cohn. Yeah. You know, I heard James Cone say at the Society of Christian Ethics in 2009 hmm. that his entire project was trying to understand the Jesus that his parents believed in. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the point being, him growing up in segregated Arkansas, yeah. he was trying to figure out how the, you would have a common confession, but mm-hmm. the same people who believed in Jesus that were of a lighter hue, shall we say, yeah. that yeah. they were... <laughs> not exactly practicing the second greatest commandment toward his parents. And how is it that his parents are not abandoning that confession? Yeah. So now I don't think that's usually the way that people would tell the story. No, of, that's okay. good though. Go uh, ahead. I'm sorry. But, but that's what he said at this. Mm-hmm. I wasn't expecting him to say it, but that's clearly what he said in 2009, looking back. And I was, yeah. I was mm-hmm. amazed mm-hmm. by yeah. that. I think mm-hmm. it's also true that, Cone was between black power and black church and trying to hold on to both of these things and basically, you know, constructing this thing like from nothing in a way. Right. I mean, because he, because here he is over at Garrett doing his thing. It's not like there was uh, him drawing that much from the the larger tradition of, of, of the black church. And part of that's because you know he's doing doctoral studies in this predominantly white setting, you're trying to have your, you know, check off all your boxes and stuff. So I think there is that part of what you identifying, uh, Dennis, there is the fact that black theology is an academic discipline, 
is largely absent, except for in the clergy of most pastors, mm. of certain pastors in black churches. Yeah. People may have some of the same concerns about liberation, but yeah. they're going to talk about liberation, I think, more directly connected to what we would call a historically orthodox view of the text and the story. Yeah. Yes, yes, because because the formation of most most people in black churches is not one that comes from a European skepticism <laughs> informed <laughs> approach to the Bible and theology. Yeah, amen. So, so I think that, that that's a dissonance uh, that kind of takes place, and it's also an interesting dissonance because it's like, okay, the people who actually are more skeptical of the text are the ones who are allowing more minorities to show up first, and the people who are more, uh, you know, agreeing about the truthfulness of the text. I mean, to me, that's, that's one of the great scandals that we have uh, to deal with. Oh, mm. indeed, uh, was well it? And uh, I think th- that's part. That's part. That's part of how you, I think you get that, because you're not having all these historically evangelical institutions saying we really want to have all these minorities in our space because they weren't right. exactly doing that. So uh, I think that there are people trying to do it now, but even then, uh, especially these days, for varying reasons, some of those spaces wind up being contested because of people not wanting to think about how to. I would say. Uh, inquire about the fullness of a faith, a faith where you don't have a bifurcation between theology and ethics. And then when you're asking about the ethics, you're actually willing to say, well, what does our ethics have to say about survival of people uh, who've, you know, have a history of being traumatized by an entire country? So, (laughs) I mean, I think that's an ethical question, I think. But but it's not one that most people are will be experiencing in, in their ethics classes. It's happening more now, I think, but I think it's still an effort to have, for that to happen as consistently. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear, uh, Dr. Williams, you talk about it from the yeah. pastoral vantage point, especially as you've moved into this uh, different sort of space from the black church. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, this summer here in Louisville, so I'm a, I'm a part of a church. I was a part of Force, which is a historic African-American church, but essentially I'm a part of a church now that's 20 years old. There's six churches in the city, but when I came in 2016, it was majority white, so it's 99% white. Since then, we have uh, moved to become a, a multi-ethnic, a predominantly white multi-ethnic church. But I went and uh, studied under Tevon Walker at Southern Seminary and Black Church Studies, and he was a, a mentor, um, one of my pastors, and a great friend. And uh, with all those dynamics coming together this summer, what I saw was a lot of churches around, especially white evangelical churches, were in crisis. Because like what Cone experienced, uh, our city was literally on fire, and many of the pulpits were completely silent. So as Colin talks about Ben and, uh, yeah. and, and and graduate studies, and he's like, wait a minute, the country's on fire. My professors have nothing to say about it mm-hmm. in this classroom. They're, they're talking about higher, a higher critical theology, right? And so we experienced that here in Louisville and even at our church. And for a while, we saw an influx uh, when everything happened with Breonna Taylor from whites who wanted to join because we had been tackling issues of race. Uh, myself, Jarvis Williams, was a New Testament professor, a guy named Timothy mm-hmm. Paul Jones. And we saw a lot of people saying, hey, our church isn't addressing these things. Something's wrong. Our city is literally on fire and they're continuing their series um, as if nothing's there. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little hopeful in some small way, very small way, <laughs> that there has been an awakening in some in some sorts amongst those who would consider themselves evangelical and starting to say there's something wrong with what we've built. 
but at the same time, I'm, I'm still skeptical. And part of that is just part of my story. Mm-hmm. And being a son of the Black church who is in love with the Black church and still deeply connected here uh, with the Black church, but who also has experienced trauma myself through uh, white evangel- evangelical Christians, mm-hmm. even as they seek to come into a multicultural space with a pastor that's black, right? Because within that awakening for them to be able to see that they have an orthodoxy um, often that doesn't bleed into uh, orthopraxy, mm-hmm. uh, there comes a lot of wounds. Mm-hmm. And and because their whole way of viewing and applying scripture many times has to, has to change. And some people are willing to make that change while others, uh, they can't. And so it's been an interesting journey myself in seeing how uh, things have happened this year on a national scale with the pandemic, the focus of the media, the the attention of so many coming in view of the Black struggle and how it's affected and impacted people here in Louisville, specifically white Christians. Mm. Hey, I'm curious to hear uh, from both Dennis and Jamal. Um, what do you think about this hypothesis that for some people, when it comes to what happened this summer, pastors don't say anything or churches don't do anything because they recognize they really have no tools to do anything yeah. <laughs> or say anything about it. There's either the recognition of that or a paralysis about being used to having an answer and discovering that there's nothing in the toolbox. Yeah. And the other other dimension of it being either fear of their congregations, if they say something, because that's the wrong kind of justice issue to talk about. Abortion, of yeah. course, yeah. is a justice issue to talk about. Yeah. Or religious mm-hmm. freedom is a justice issue, but not that. But racism yeah. is a justice issue. So that piece. Or do they just really not believe that there's a there there to be talked about? Yeah. I'll be quick. What I've experienced is all of those, but I'll add one more, is the pastor who sees what I believe uh, they see as reality. And they have that, that, that choice to make to either humble themselves and become a, a genuine learner mm. or kind of dig their heels deeper into their own world mm. and then fight for what they have believed. Yeah. And unfortunately, I've seen more fighting and trying to protect yes. um, as opposed to humbling. And yeah. uh, we even had a church here in the city, a uh, white professor, man, instead of you know, being humble and, and preaching to the pain of the city, he just went the opposite way. And he was a really well-known pastor here, and we and he just saw a, a large exodus from his church. Mm. Uh, I mean, he lost the majority of his church to churches that were actually pressing into these issues that were will be considered biblically orthodox, right? Mm. And I just saw that time and time again this summer where some people were afraid um, to say anything, but I saw more people try to speak up than I have in the past. But unfortunately, many white pastors just kind of said, nope, this isn't reality. This is all made up. This is left liberal media. Yeah. And this is the truth. We have to stay focused. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I I, I don't want to be too cynical because I'm seeing a younger generation of pastors, leaders, seminary educated folks, I guess I'll say, but even folks who might not have seminary education, but are I don't know, maybe the word is progressive, who want to engage what Black Christians have been saying for a long time. Mm. But I find that there's pastors who are slow, and I'm so with what mm. Dr. Williams just said. I see exactly the same thing. And I wonder if it's if it's a point of pride to say these Black pastors were right or 
or this this is a reality that exists and I have to if I admit that then there's a slip evangelicals always worry about a slippery slope but there'll be a slippery slope of so many other things that they may have been wrong about so I I wonder that but I think uh, both of you Dr. Baco Dr. William I think you both hit on what I'm seeing too and I and I I imagine that all of that is happening at the same time yeah so as we're uh, wrapping up, I, gosh, I just wonder if you guys would, would put on your profit mantle for a second and, and look out a little bit and say what you think is coming in regards to the, the black church, its uh, internal relationship, its relationship with white Christians, white church, just what's coming? Uh, this is Dennis. I'm going to jump in right away. I was thinking about this. So I think that, for, at least historically, black churches have been heavily preacher-centered, and the pastors tended to be the most educated in the congregation. That's not so anymore. So I would say black churches, just like their white counterparts, need to be more increasingly collaborative. I would also argue that black churches need to become increasingly respectful of our sisters who bankrolled and otherwise supported the black church since the beginning, but don't always get a prominent voice in many of our places, not all of them, of course. Mm. But I think whatever common ground is going to be found with multi-ethnic white churches, I mean, I've been part of multi-ethnic churches myself. I've been, I've yeah. been trying to be deliberate in them coming out of a, you know, a time of school desegregation. I thought the answer was to find churches that could bring people together of different races. So I still think that reality, I mean, that mission is still legit. I think that's going to happen. But I think what multi-ethnic churches are, are going to be learning from the black church. Uh, so I do think the black church will, will continue on, but it's going to have to reshape in a sense of that collaborative kind of notion of how we respect the voices of young people, many well-educated people who don't just attend you know, like some big name folks might attend a church, but they really are not shaped by that church. Uh, so they have a churchy identity, if you follow what I'm saying. I do think the future is going to need to be more space made for the Black professionals who can really be part of the church and not just attend it. Hmm. Yeah. I think a challenge for every tradition is what I call the catechesis challenge, hmm. uh, that the formation of people who really have a deep understanding of, of their faith and how their faith is not just something that is confessed or celebrated on Sunday, but something that permeates yeah. their lives. And so that that churches have a perpetual challenge to make sure they're doing that and to do that in a media-saturated context where there's all forms of cultural discipleship that are telling people about what the good life is. And so a catechesis that shows a better conception of what the good life is, from that, that is life with God. Mm. So I think that's uh, a challenge of churches writ large, but one that does not escape uh, the yeah. black church. And I think also with that, I think to the extent that black churches can help people that are dealing with their consciousness raising uh, <laughs> phase, that you're able to help people to appreciate their particularity as created by God as as black persons, uh, and to be able to do that in ways where you appreciate it and are able to do it in a way that keeps you from swinging the pendulum to needing to somehow posture it against whiteness. It's just good what it is because God made it, right? Yes. So, so you can critique whiteness, but you don't need to become, in some way, it's opposite in terms of blackness. Uh, yeah. by creating a, a black supremacy as opposed to a white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And my point isn't that I think a lot of people are seeking that. It's just a natural thing that can happen when you've got a lot of trauma. And there are a lot of people who have 
race-based trauma that requires healing. And for the church to do that well, I think it includes a formation that helps people to say, yes, your blackness is part of God's incredible creativity and imagination, and it's part of his imagination, and so are other things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I think that's important because the, you know, the, the, the response to white supremacy isn't black supremacy. It's the affirmation of the goodness of the entirety of humanity that God has made. And so I think that's an important thing to do. And it's hard to do that when people are gaslighting you about talking about just attending to your ethnicity. Right. So, so I think that that's an important challenge for the black church. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. That's, that's good. Uh, I don't have much to add. I, I think that's a lot to think about there and that I'm really hopeful about the black church. And the reason being is uh, I think that there's just so much with this generation, there's good anger, right? There is a righteous anger. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some, there's things that we should be angry about, yeah. but I don't see many sages and solutions, you know? And I still think that the church, uh, because we have the word of God, because we have the spirit indwelling us, just have a, a something different to offer. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people within this generation and the type of activism that's been shown, some of it's good, not all of it's, you know, bad, are going to come to a place of just needing the sweet balm of the gospel mm-hmm. and needing hope. Mm-hmm. And that's what the black church does. That's what it's yeah. done yeah. from its inception is give hope. So I'm like really encouraged. And, and just because I pastor a multicultural, multi-ethnic church, don't get, I'm a son of a black church. I love the black church. I send people to black churches all the time, you know, <laughs> and uh, every time I get the opportunity to preach in a black church, I get in there and, and I preach too. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, once you get to that that dialogue <laughs> or flow, it's like, oh man, I've been missing this. So I didn't go and accept this call because I've given up on the black church. I just this was just a call that was clear on my life and an area where the Lord has just given me fruit, right? Right, right. But in the future, man, I think the black church has a great opportunity. I think, as Dr. Edwards said too, the using the resources that's within. We've got doctors, we've got lawyers, we've got teachers, mm-hmm. we've got people who are educated and making sure that we make the church not simply about Sunday morning, but yeah. about bringing those efforts together to impact the community and knowing that the answer for the community um, lies within the church. So tapping into that and taking it a step further. So it's all going to come down to organization and uh, not competing with one another and sharing resources. And I think the multi-ethnic church and the white church needs to be wise in putting their best foot forward to help uh, support and partner with black churches uh, to see to their flourishing. So, Amen. Amen. So good. So helpful. Thank you all for participating. This has been a, a special sponsored episode of, of Quick to Listen, a podcast of, of Christianity Today. Uh, Brought to you by uh, PBS, uh, whose two-part series, The Black Church, uh, debuts on February 16th and on 17th. A special thanks uh, today to Dr. Vincent Baycoat, Professor of Theology, the Director of the Center for Applied Christian Ethics at Wheaton College, Dr. Dennis R. Edwards, the Associate Professor of New Testament at North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago, and Dr. Jamal Williams, the lead pastor of Sojourn Church Midtown in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm Daniel Harrell, Editor-in-Chief of Christianity Today. It's, it's been a privilege and a, a real blessing, gentlemen. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, brother.
This episode was brought to you in part by the audio adventure series Discovery Mountain. Help your kids fall in love with the Bible. Each true-to-life adventure story will draw them closer to Jesus. Visit discoverymountain.com/ct.